The biggest thing that uh, my industry, I would say, as pork producers, um, my dad, uncles, grandparent, uh, great grandpa, they would never do anything like I'm doing today, ever. But I have seen how hard that they work, manually have worked over the years. And if you do not tell your story, somebody else will, and they will twist your story. So I work really hard to tell my family's story and to tell the truth about what is really happening and why my family does it the way that they do it. How can I raise a safe and healthy product for consumers to eat? How can I ensure that all of my employees are safe every day that they go to work? Because that is super important to my family. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Morning on Farm to Table Talk, we're going to talk about raising pigs. And we might touch on some other livestock as well, but it's you know the way we raise pigs uh, it's a little a little different over the years everything keeps changing but one thing that isn't different is fewer and fewer people know what it's like hardly anybody's been to pig farms anymore um you know they they hear this or that but they really can't picture it well somebody can picture it today is my guest Cheryl Walsh and Cheryl raises pigs and other things. So we're going to talk about that. Cheryl, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you for having me. Cheryl, how is it that you come to be a pig farmer? That's not something that everybody has on their list uh, necessarily. Although I have to admit, I think when I was a little kid, there was a time or two I thought I might, but it didn't work out that way. Well, um, I'm actually a fourth generation. My great grandpa started this business in the middle 1930s. And my family today has continued the business. But it's changed, I, I would say. So what did it look like? And you are in Illinois, near central Illinois. Yes. Um, so how would, it, how would it have changed in that time period from what it looked like? How did your great-grandfather used to raise pigs? Um, my great-grandfather started this business, and he bought four bread gilts. So a gilt is a female that has not had any pigs yet, but he bought them when they were bred. And at that time period, they were all raised outside. They were able to come into a little barn area when they, at night and when it got cold and when they would have their piglets, which is called farrowing, that's when he would have them in a little smaller pen by themselves with just their piglets. Um, so in that time period and that era, they really didn't have their baby pigs in the wintertime or when it was cold out. They would only have them to where they farrowed or had their baby pigs in March, basically March to September, October is the only time that they would have it so that their pigs would farrow because they weren't able to keep them alive in the wintertime. It just got way too cold to keep the baby pigs alive. And it was just too hard of a time period back then. So he had these four red gilts and he'd have these pigs and they were outside most of the time. 
and and then what kind of was the cycle from that from that stage on did he grow them up until the point that they, he was feeding him what he grew on the farm uh had to had to buy feed what was what happened then um at that time period my great-grandpa farmed his own corn and soybeans and so he would the crops that he raised he would use to feed the pigs um out of that out of those four bread guilds i think that by the time it came to where those pigs were actually able to be butchered because in that time period too most families butchered their own meat they didn't really have the lockers like we have now and stuff like that and i think i think he only ended up with like three or four that actually made it to the market weight that he could butcher them for his family why that they they just die from (laughs) whatever um the environment that they were in at that time period these animals they were outside you had a fence around them but you still had predators like coyotes and foxes um the moms would accidentally lay on them and it just the survivability at that time period with the way that you were raising them you're it was not very high you weren't able to keep very many so somebody, either your great grandfather then or your grandparents, decided there was some way to raise more and do them a little different. What was that next step? So my grandpa, when he came back, when he came back from the army and all that, he started farming with his father. And at that time period, they decided that they would like to raise a few more pigs to have to to sell to the markets or for their family was getting bigger. So for them to eat themselves. So they built a building to where the sows could go in and they put farrowing crates in there, which is makes it so that the sow can't lay on the baby pigs. And they were able to, by doing it that way, they were able to have more pigs that survived the first month. I mean, a lot of before the pigs couldn't even survive the first month because Mm -hmm. there was no safe place basically for the baby pigs to get away from their moms. So yeah, I was going to say like a farrowing crate, uh, they're usually metal and, and they can go into them and they, they, you could feed them at one end. And then on both sides, there's spaces that the pigs can get away. So when the sow lays down, like you say, they don't squish them. And there were a lot of pigs killed that they didn't have those. Yes. And the pigs can still wander around the, the sow and get up to the udder to be able to get get their food. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's all inside then. I mean, the farrowing crates were um, probably never outside, really, were they? they no. Were in no, no, no. They were all inside. Um, the old barn that they used to be in, um, They we had it to where we'd turn the sows out twice a day. And they come out of their pens to eat and to get drink. And the sows would run around a little bit. But it was hard to get them to go back in there with those babies. They didn't want to go back in there. Yeah. 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 They didn't care about the babies so much. And then um, after that, when my dad graduated from high school and a couple uncles had gotten to that point, too, and they wanted to come back to the farm, my family at that point, we decided to expand more and they um, they built a couple more hog buildings. We built a finisher, which a nursery finisher, and that's where the pigs go after they're weaned from their moms. 
we remodeled another barn to put farrowing crates in it. It all got updated to where we can feed the sow right there. All the water that she needs is right there. And we were finally able to um, have successful weanings as far as how many pigs that she was able to keep on her until the pigs were at that time period, they were about a month old, then 28 days roughly is how old they were. Yeah. Well, let's see, I just want to catch up a little bit though, because you go back again, back to your great grandfather's days and so forth. At that point in your time, you were saying they'd be lucky if they ended up with three or four pigs. So how did that change as you went into this transition and into the farrowing crates of how many how many pigs were still, well, how many pigs a sow has at a time, how many in a year, and and from the number that are born, how many are still alive to, you know, for weaning to go on to the next stage from the time they're through being nursed by the sow? What What's that look like? So um, back in the time period of my great-grandpa, the genetics weren't near what they are now. So at that time, a sow might only have five or six pigs at a time. And um, like I said, by the time we got on market weight, the first couple of years, it wasn't very good. But when my dad came back, we were in the process. The genetic companies had really worked really hard to improve the sows and uh, the boars, too, so that the born live would be higher. And around then, it got to be with my dad. I'd say when he first came back, I'd say we were around that 10 maybe 10 pigs is what they'd have um per year I, per, per litter right per litter per litter so a sow is pregnant for 116 days it is equivalent to three months three weeks and three days is what it is that's their gestation period mm-hmm. and then you have at that time they were having their pigs on the sow for about a month so there's another month on it and then usually once you wean a sow, wean the baby pigs from a sow, they come back into heat within five days, five to seven days after you've weaned them. And then they would be rebred again. So you'd start the cycle again from there. And back then, if you got, I mean, you were lucky if you got, I don't know, I'm saying just over two litters a year out of your sows. That was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And now you do more than two litters a year? We do. We do. Um, It's not quite two and a half, but it's close to two and a half litters a year is what they can have. Um, We were close to 26 pigs per sow per year Mm -hmm. that they're weaning by the time we get to all that. Back when my dad was there, we were close to 20. If we were lucky, it was 20 pigs per sow per year that was weaned off of them. So just the different genetic technology is a lot of it. And a lot of it is the environment that they're raised in has helped with some of that. So they're in uh, environmental, what say, climate controlled Mm -hmm. buildings. So now now where you are, it can get hot and humid in the summer and it can get very cold in, in the winter. How much is the building able to take the worst off of both edges? Okay, so in the wintertime, um, we just got through getting everything ready for wintertime around here. We have heaters in all of the rooms. It is 70 degrees in those firing houses year-round, pretty much. 
So the heaters are all going and then we have heat lamps in each farrowing crate for those individual pigs. And then we put a black mat down there so that the baby pigs can lay on this black mat. And with the heat lamp, it's really warm for them to lay on. And even in the middle of winter, once those pigs get about seven to 10 days old, they don't lay on the black mat as much because it's a little bit too warm for them, but they'll lay around there. And then in the summertime, we have what's called cool cells. And what that is, is that is a, um, it's kind of like a heavy duty cardboard that water runs through. Between that and the vents, it helps take out the humidity, even though you'd think water was adding humidity to it, but it helps cool down the rooms a lot. And the days that it's even 100 degrees outside, it can knock those rooms down to 75. It, they might reach 80 now and then, but not very often. We're able to keep the air flowing in there. And pigs is pigs can't sweat. So we can't have them get really hot. So that was one of the biggest things with pigs, with moving them inside and adding the cool cells. And if it gets severe, we do have a sprinkler system that we can run on them to where each sow has their own nozzle that drips on them so that it's all on an individual basis. You know, I oftentimes people are skeptical of saying, gee, it's too bad the livestock have to be in barns almost all the time. And and I always I hear that and I think have have you ever experienced an, an Illinois summer when it's uh, high humidity and hot or uh twenty-five below zero in the in the winters and um, you can easily see why. Well, wait a minute. Maybe on a perfect day, it's nice to be able to go out and roam in the trees. But overall, there's uh, there's a lot of comfort you can be able to provide in these in these buildings. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, pigs actually like their temperature to remain consistent. They don't like the ups and downs in the temperature. They're they're a lot like humans. So humans, we're the same way. If we go from, I know here in central Illinois, this happens quite a bit. We'll go from 85 degrees one day and it's beautiful to 45 or 50 degrees the next day. It's raining, it's cold. And a few days of the back and forth like that. And even as humans, we get sick. Well, the pigs do too. So a way that we can help keep them healthier is by keeping their environment the same with a constant temperature. By having the temperature for the most part be pretty much the same, we try and keep it to where um, even on the days that it gets really, really hot during the day and when fall's coming, it'll cool down at night a little bit more. We try and keep the temperature within five to 10 degrees all the time so that it's not a huge fluctuation like it is outside. Now, I want to go back to just like the sows. Are you raising your own females to, to be your sow herd or are you purchasing? breeding stock boars and sows so i do i do purchase my breeding stock um all of my gilts are purchased from i have a single source supplier and i don't have any boars i only yeah. have more boars you know that's another story that, that yes. we'll have to kind of explain a little bit because that used to be a requirement of course because to have a litter of pigs you need to have a boar and a sow mate Mm -hmm. And that doesn't happen. In fact, I want to go back to you were saying that the sows come in heat. 
not long after they're weaned i didn't i never thought of it that way i mean is that kind of that kind of triggers that that stage when they're they're breedable then they're they could uh they could be bred and they could do you know from that end up with a litter of pigs three months three weeks and three days away but explain that missing boar that uh again in your grandpa's days although he bought bread gilts i bet in your dad's days they were still buying sore sows and and breeding them to the gilts that they that they raise so mm -hmm. what's this what's this process like now well um I'll go back to when I was a kid, even when I was a kid there and we would do chores and all that. We had groups of boars is mm -hmm. what we had. And there was always three, three boars in a group and we'd put them with um, anywhere from 15 to 20 sows. And at that time period, we did a lot of batch farrowing. So when I call it batch farrowing, that meant that that whole group of 15 or 20, they would be due to farrow within this one one month was mm -hmm. when this batch would be done. And then we wouldn't have another batch come in until after all those pigs had been weaned. And then we'd bring in the next batch is mm -hmm. how we did it back then. And we did use boars at that time period. It was all 100% boars. And when my family expanded and we went to where we farrowed in one location compared to three, we switched things up to where we went to 100% AI, which is artificial insemination, is where we're at, 100%. So you have, now you're, you're breeding stock. So you're buying, you're buying breeding stock. You're not buying purebred, what we used to call purebred gilts nope. anymore, are you? No. So what, no. So what are, what are the genetics <clears throat> of, the, of the gilts that you would be purchasing to have the females in your herd? So, um, all of ours are a Landrace Yorkshire cross, basically, is what they are. Those big are the white, two. big white pigs, long yeah, white big pigs. Big white pigs. Yep. They are. They're a big white pig. Um, when you mix those genetics together, you can come up with a very um productive female. And she can be very productive. Her she's not very big framed, even though we do call them a big white. But just it's just some different breeds combined to make what we call um, we use PIC gilts is what we use. And so we've picked out the female that works the best for our situation. What's a PIC gilt? <clears throat> PIC is a genetic company. Oh, OK. okay. And they'll supply the gilts. Yes. And then and then you need uh as is required to produce anything that you're going to have to have sperm. Mm -hmm. And so there's a company that will provide you with, uh, with certain sperm from uh, boars. That's going to give the cross that you want with the pigs that you put in yes. the big white right? So you yes. like get a catalog or something and describes the, the, the <laughs> boar source or what? So the pigs, when it comes to the commercial end of it, which is where I'm at, I'm at the commercial end of it. We don't really have the catalogs that's got a bunch of different genetics on it, per se. Um, we do work with what's called a boar stud. So a boar stud is a facility that has a bunch of different boars, and they collect the semen there three days a week, and we get a delivery three days a week from them. 
three days a week. Is that is it that often because you just can't put it in the freezer and have it last for months? Yes. Yeah. So when you do um, fresh collection, like what we do, it's only good for um, three to four days. It just depends on when it was collected. So because of that, we just have delivery three days a week so that we can guarantee that what we're using is still fresh. Um, The guys that do do that job, they check it every morning. So they check and make sure that the swimmers are still good every day when they get ready to use that batch. Oh, so they actually like take a sample and look in a microscope or something yeah. and see if the sperm's swimming like it should swim? Yeah. Yes. So you're, paying attention, so you're paying attention to not only how much sperm, but sperm, but the quality and, uh, and can kind of predict then, um, I guess, what effect it'll have on whether or not you're, they're going to be able to, you know, fertilize a lot of eggs yep. that will result in at least 10 pigs from, well, from I'm hoping more than that now. Really? Hmm. Oh yes. Absolutely. Well, let, let me, I mean, fascinated with this. So you, you know, how you pick the choice out. So the sounds actually is going to be in a, a crate or something with walls. So it can't move around a lot. And, and you, you know, you have this, the sperm to be able to, to put into the sound. That's probably as much detail as I can even get into, but it's just, uh, and, and success is it almost a hundred percent? Okay. No. Um, I have, first off, I will say that I have an amazing group of employees that work for us. They do a fabulous job. I have three of them that have been with us for 17 to 20 years. They are not just employees, but they're our family basically. And um, they, I mean, it's just unreal. I mean, they they do such a great job. They've made it to where um, those guys now, they're probably running about a 96% conception rate is wow. where. So, I mean. First, they, I mean, the first try, this isn't that you don't have to be yeah. bred several times to get 96%. Um, they're usually bred twice. Okay. Is what they are. Because back in the days when you turn boars in with big pins full of sows, I mean, it could be, who knows, like you said. Yeah. Some of them just miss it entirely. Yeah, absolutely. Some of them could get missed. Some of them might get bred five or six times, but it just wasn't as efficient. You weren't utilizing the tools that you were being given when you did it outside like that. Now, that. I mean, that gets to a stage that's caused some uh, angst uh, in that what happens to the gilts once they're bred? I mean, where, how do they live? What's, how are they, how do you keep them until they actually are back into the farrowing crates and, and having pigs? Are they loose or are they in, in stalls? Uh, because there's people that are saying, gee, I didn't know this was going on. Um but kind of describe that next stage where how the guilt spends that three months, three weeks and three days until she actually lays down and has the pigs. So um, probably 90 to 95% of our guilts and our sows are kept in fairway stalls. Um, we do that for a number of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is for the safety of that animal. When an animal is in an individual area, you can give them individual care. 
when they're in a pen, it's really hard to give an animal individual care. Mm-hmm. And another reason that we do the gestation stalls is for the safety of our employees. Mm-hmm. When the animal itself is in kind of a confined area, I don't have to worry about my employees getting hurt. We do have some pen gestation. And when the employees have to go into one of those pins, we kind of have a rule that somebody else has to be around there in case they get knocked over from them running around or anything else like that. When they're in the stalls, they actually don't get hurt near as much as they do when they're in the pins. When they're in the pins, um, our mortality rate is really high in our pin gestation compared to our crate gestation. See, I think uh, some people have heard gestation crates talked about because there's been some some actions, including here in California, um, that was critical or saying that they didn't want them and, and so forth. But you're talking about whether the crates or stalls, it's the same idea. I mean, they're they're in this particular space. And, and I guess... Um, now, there's also, aren't there some where they can let themselves into the stalls and if they can kind of hang out with the girls that they want to, they can back back out again and hang around, hang around a little bit and then go go back in and feed. But they don't want to leave. Uh-huh. Well, so <laughs> if you took the back, if you took the back off of it, they could back out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they don't uh, want to leave. They want to stay. They so uh, pigs actually like to be more by themselves. Uh, pigs are actually very aggressive animals and instead of them being friendly with the other pigs, they actually fight with the other pigs, especially when it comes to the sows and the gilts that are on sow farms, like what I have, Mm -hmm. they, they just, they don't want to be around the other animals. They want to be by themselves. Hmm. It's, it's different. And I mean, We had years ago, we did have that. We had gestation stalls that had a pin on the back so that they could go into the gestation stall. That's where we would feed them so that we could make sure that each animal ate and that everybody was healthy. And then when we got done feeding, we would open up the backs and we found that they never came out. They just were perfectly content just staying in that stall because their food and water is right there for them. And we noticed that we didn't have near the injuries to this sows and gilts once we put them in there. And we noticed that we didn't lose as many either because they weren't fighting each other and hurting each other or even killing each other. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's one of those things that people that just when they first hear about it, they say, well, I don't understand that because they think they try to relate to how they would feel like as if a human can relate to what it's be like to be a pig. Um, You know, I remember one guy telling me that the pigs don't pile up in cold weather to keep each other warm. They pile up to keep themselves warm. That, That element that you're talking about, that they really prefer being loners. uh, That's interesting. There's uh but that gets into that tricky area, I suppose, because people want to be able to think about what makes animals happy or what works as if what makes them what they think of. If they don't know too much about it, they think of, well, I wouldn't like that or I, yeah. I'm just guessing it's it's an it's it's a new frontier. We're at in a way where 
in so many other areas, people who have never been to a farm are very curious and, you know, want to hear more stories about how their how their animals are, are raised. And, you know, what you're describing, the modern technology doesn't look much like um, the coloring books that might be available for, you know, three and five year olds. It's uh, with the red barn and the white picket fence and, and all, all of those things. It's it's different. It is. It is because those red barns and the white picket fences are gone. Mm-hmm. They're not here anymore. Well, not only that, the kind of pig farming like your great grandpa or maybe your dad did, they're the one too. I mean, what the five or six biggest states that raise raise hogs. Uh, it wasn't that many years ago that you could drive out into the country and every quarter of a mile uh, you see a farmstead and you would see pigs. They would have what was called self-feeders and they would have um, maybe a hog house and they didn't have crates or anything. Uh, where'd they go, Cheryl? How come we don't have those anymore? Um, part of it is a lot of people figured out that it's cheaper and less work to actually buy their meat in the store. Yeah. Nobody, I mean, I'll give my area, for example. Um, I, I, I'm originally from around the Peoria area. My, I moved and relocated at one time period in my life. And when I moved back to central Illinois, where I ended up buying a house used to actually be a farm Mm -hmm. and the farm itself has turned into a subdivision. Mm -hmm. And that is some of it is that there's more houses here than what there used to be even 20 years ago. Even since I moved out of that subdivision, it's like tripled in size just since then. But a lot of it has come from the standpoint that people are so far removed from the family. I mean, you you raised pigs when you were a kid, but you have grandkids now. Yeah. And even your kids, your kids were never really exposed to any of it, were they? Yeah, they would go visit grandpa. So okay. they could they could see um, they could see pigs pigs on the farm. Okay. There used to be there used to be more people like Grandpa though too, and and it wasn't yeah. just that they were and they were making a living, you know, back in those days, and they could haul their um, when their pigs were were finished at, at market weight. You could go into the Peoria Union Stockyards, yeah, which uh, you had no idea what you were going to get for them that day. You go in, and there will be buyers of meat packers. Mm-hmm. That would be walking out and walk into your pen and and um, you know, you would get you would know what the price was. And some of the bigger ones as they got bigger would go to Joliet up in Chicago and mm-hmm. and have to truck them up there for two and a half hours or something like that away. Um, but there used to be a lot of farmers. I assume the jump is, and I'll let I shouldn't try to put words in your mouth, but um they couldn't make a living doing it that way. I mean, they reached uh, yeah. reached a point. I mean, I suspect that that you know, in your case, I mean, if you could happily make a good income having fifty sows and um, yourself, that might be fun. Yeah, uh, but I would imagine you'd have a hard time paying your bills and you know taking yes. care of your kids and all the other things we want to do. Yes, absolutely. So. 
I mean, a lot of the reason that we have gone to where um, there's not really any pigs in people's backyards anymore is there's there's a couple reasons. Um, one of them is that as the next generation um, has, as these people have had kids, their kids have gone off to college and one, they figured out that working on a farm, you don't make much money and they have found those town jobs is what we call them here out in the country. But they or they're in a time period to where their parents don't farm enough to make enough of a profit to allow the next generation to come back. Yeah. Some of it. That is some of it. We were in a um, time period also with some of the changes was the fact that, yes, there wasn't, if you had 25 sows in your backyard, you were not profitable enough to raise your family. As any part of the ag sector, when it comes to being a producer of corn, soybeans, your wheat, your cattle, your hogs, your sheep, even your chickens and your dairy, we are all price takers. That means that this price is set for us. We do not get to set our price at all based upon how much it cost us to produce that product. And when yeah. you came to the late 1980s, that's when it got really bad. In the late 1980s is when I would say that a lot of producers that used to have that 20 to 50, even 200 sows, they got out of business Yeah, because, they, because the market was so bad. They didn't have what we like to call working capital, enough working capital to keep going. And it was at the point that the banks weren't going to allow them to keep going. Well, you had mentioned you were talking earlier. You're saying, for example, the people in the backyard, but uh, but that did include really what were at the time good sized farms. I mean, the farms it that did. could be three three hundred acres, and they weren't just in the backyard, and they might raise even a couple thousand hogs a year. Uh, but that wasn't enough. But no. somebody told somebody told me, Cheryl, that they in those days where in your part of Illinois everything you raised was fed to your livestock. So you, the reason you had corn is the corn didn't go off to a grain elevator. The corn went in to feed that you were feeding your pigs and your cattle and, and whatever livestock. And then, and then when it got tougher, he said, well, wait a minute, I might as well just graze the grain because I can't make any more money or make any money if I feed it to my livestock. So it made them, it changed. It did. It did. And um, I would say probably a bigger change ha happened in the late 1980s yeah. is when the bigger change probably happened on mm -hmm. that standpoint, because you're right. At that time, there was people that had 300 acres of corn and soybeans. They had 50 to 100 sows. Most of the crop that they raised did go into those um, hogs that they were producing. And when you spend all this money to get this pig to its market weight, and then, I mean, at that time period, you were only getting maybe $10 for this pig that you had roughly $100 into by the time that you put a price tag on how on the corn and the soybeans that went into that pig. So you were losing big money. Well, how many sows do you have now? We have around 2,250 to 2,300. It just kind of varies. 
That's right. So get two, so over two thousand sows, and they can get yes. close close to thirty pigs a year, twenty six mm-hmm. or twenty seven pigs per year. That's a lot of pigs. It is. And and in your your program, your how much longer do you own them after the pigs are weaned? Um, I don't. Oh, you sell them right off the sow. We do. So every Monday and Thursday morning, we wean pigs. So we, um, since we're inside and everything else, we do Pharaoh 365 days a year. There's pretty much a pig born about every minute of every day around our place. And um, so we wean them twice a week. They're not quite 21 days old. They're about 20 and a half days old when we wean them. At that time period, they will be 13 to 15 pounds. And I always tell everybody that it's like a kid that's 18 years old. Mm-hmm. As a parent, you're ready for them to leave. Yeah, Love your kids, but there comes a point that it's time for them to move on or continue their education or to get a job or to start working on things themselves. That's where it is with these pigs, these baby pigs, when they get to be about that 20 days old. Um, And we wean them, they're loaded automatically onto a truck. And we load them onto a truck and we deliver them to the buyers. So I sell them right away. As soon as they're weaned. Little pigs are short. So are there several levels in the truck? Yes, there is. There's two levels in our truck. We Mm -hmm. have a, a gooseneck trailer, livestock trailer is what we have that has two decks in it. Now, how far do you have to go to deliver your pigs? Well, yesterday they went out into Charles City, Iowa area. So it's about four or five hours away. Wow. Wow. And well, uh, got- is, is that a common practice now? Is it is it unusual for people to be feral to finish where they're actually raising the pigs and then feeding them out to market weights too? You know, there's not very many people that do the whole thing. People have either specialized to where they're a sow farm like myself, or they are just a wean to finish. There are some people that own shares of a sow farm. So they get a certain percentage of the pigs and they'll put them in a wean to finish building and finish them out themselves. But our industry has come to where you kind of, you're one or you're the other. You're not the whole, the whole process. Now, did you have do you have a veterinarian that specializes in working with pigs that that's able to work with you? Yes, I do. He has been with us for 22, 23 years, something like that. He's been with us. He comes every three weeks and we do what's called a herd health. So he walks through the building. Um, we look at every sow and we make sure that there's nothing wrong with anybody. Um, with pigs in particular, we do have to blood test them quite a bit to make sure that they aren't carrying any of the diseases that are around. And also by having them inside, we've been able to eliminate a lot of those diseases in the livestock industry, especially the pig industry. Yeah. Uh, so he comes every three weeks and we go, we do a walkthrough. Um, every once in a while, we might have something going on in the South farm. And we sit there and we pick his brain. He offers some advice and we have a great relationship with him. Yeah. So can pigs get COVID? No, they cannot get COVID. They cannot get COVID. No. 
but they can get other things. And I would imagine having a, a, a closed barn like that, that, you know, it's you're reducing the exposures that might might come if you were open and you know and, and i just i suspect you're pretty careful about who can go in and whether you have to wear coveralls or certain boots or anything like that to be able to go in and out of your barns um you actually have to take a shower so in the um pork and the poultry industry quite a bit we have what's called biosecurity and every farm sets their own biosecurity based upon their different protocols. Uh, on our farm, we have you walk when you walk into the building there, you walk into a little office area and the office itself. There is a bench right there that you sit on that bench. You take off your socks and your shoes and then you lift, lift your feet up onto the other side of the bench. And the other side of the bench, there is two showers. And that is the only way that you can get into the farm is you have to shower into the farm to get in there. There wow. is different things that birds can carry or if the wind is blowing really bad, um, other farms, diseases and stuff like that could blow into your area. Um. So you, if you, that's that's a, a level of control that most people wouldn't wouldn't realize. And when you referred earlier to like backyard growing, I know that's a concern with the the poultry industry with the more and more backyard chickens. That there's concern there actually through avian flu and other things that have implications for human health too. That it's hard to control when it's you know out and just in local backyards and so forth. Yes, um, but you don't see backyard pigs anymore you see pet pigs you know used to exist maybe they still do but yeah uh, it's, a, it's a different different world so now when you when you sell these pigs then they're largely going to somebody that will take them all the way to market weight when they're ready to for slaughter at which is like what going from like what 15 20 pounds they have to take them all the way up to like 280 pounds is that about it yeah. Yeah, 280. They the packers do not like them over 300. So they need to be just under 300. Yeah. Is where they need to be yeah. in between 275 and 300. Is where so they need the, to be. talk about that uh about who's doing this. I mean, we talked about your family farming operation and how you are right now, but uh but the people you're marketing to, how many of them would be you know, companies, how many of them are families that have been in the business for a long time? Um, ours is 100% families. Mm -hmm. We don't sell to any companies. Um, I do have one family that probably buys, I bet they're 90% of our pigs. And then I have um, oh. three other families that buy the other 10%. So did they go through a similar process that got them where they are today that you did, except they decided they, they weren't going to invest in being producing pigs, that they mm -hmm. could just specialize in, in feeding them. But I, I suspect that their families, they have been raising hogs for a long time and yes. just had to get bigger. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'll go back to the 80s there, too. That was part of the big push for um, 
to where you either farrowed and you sold wean pigs or you were a wean to finish guy because it, equipment cost is a lot of it. Labor is the other part of it. Every family set up different. I mean, I come from a big family. So for our family to continue to do the sows and to continue farrowing, that was a good idea for us. But we went, when we did that big switch to where we bought our sow farm and then we expanded it, we also got rid of all of our finishers. So at that time period, we decided that we would not finish any hogs at that time either. And that's that's where the that's where it went. And some families, there was only say two or three of them, they couldn't do the farrowing part of it. It was just too much labor to do all that. So they just they wanted to continue to raise pigs. So they just did the wean to finish part. Now, what determines the price that you're going to get for these these pigs? Because at the market level, the prices can vary quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And so somebody that's feeding pigs may have a period that it's profitable and something there's not a lot of meat packers. And that's always been an issue uh, is how many there are. I don't know what are there three or four that do most. The big of, four. Yeah, the big four. And, big. and farmers always want more competition if they can get it but whatever the competitive environment is the markets go up and down there can be absolutely and uh how when do you feel that because uh somebody has to have the pigs to keep their business going so they got to purchase it from you but they're they may go through periods of time that those finished hogs are losing lots of money uh and it happens ever so often we've been in that time period and we've been there for about a year and the projections are that it's June of 24 before they become profitable. So oh, we. Oh, June of 24. Oh. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So the hog market is um, you have to go with the 10 year average. You can't you can't base it off of just a couple of years because that pig that I'm that I'm selling you that I sold you yesterday you're going to have that pig on feed for five to five and a half months before it's actually at its market weight to where you can sell it. So this isn't a two week turnaround and you can quickly turn a profit and move things through. A lot of people do do a lot of hedging on the Chicago board of trade, but our, like I said, all of the ag industry, when it comes to production ag, we are all price takers. So our prices are set by the Chicago Board of Trade on the tradings. Now, I just think that you're kind of in an awkward spot because uh, when you're selling them, uh, it might be at a time that the market's good. Yes. But then, then when they, um, but then for some reason, the market tanks. So the people that are feeding them and then they've lost money and they're probably going to be tougher on you when they have to go back and, and repurchase, I suppose, because they've, they've been losing money. And so they want to pay less for your pigs. My family has a different philosophy than what most families do is, is that um, when times are good, we share it. When times are bad, we share it. Yeah. Because I won't be in business if my wing to finish guys can't buy the pigs. So when times are bad, we're, we're, we're not making a profit either. But when times are good, they're making one and so are we. Yeah. That's my family's philosophy. And I I think it's a great one. Yeah. I really do. 
Well, you know, I I guess there must be a market reports on what wean pigs sell for, I guess, because I knew for market rate, people could figure out, well, here's what the market is for uh, for hogs that are going, you know, for processing. So is there similar reports that you you know what what the market is for your for the pigs that the size that you're selling? So I will admit my family has a contract. We have a high-low contract, and it's based upon the six months future on the Chicago Board of Trade. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, it's a percentage of that. So it's an it's an interesting process. And again, I think that people listening to this that aren't hog farmers themselves and haven't been to hog farms in a long time. Um, this is an eye opener. It's different. It's a, it's it's not your great grandfather's farms a, anymore. No. Uh, it, as much as somebody might like it to be. Now, with so many people um, confused, or they just don't know what's going on. What they hear, they get worried, and 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 let you respond to a couple of these. And in that, uh, you have organizations that are trying to tell the story. Uh, you've got a state pork producers association. There's a national pork producers. Uh, you're affiliated with Farm Bureau and so forth. Do do all pig farmers end up financing the the pork organizations? Um, so all of your commodities have what's called a checkoff. So you have the corn checkoff, you have the soybean checkoff, the beef checkoff, and the um, swine checkoff is what you have. So checkoff dollars are used for education and research. So every producer contributes to that. Uh, it's a mandatory contribution. And what that does is, is that it helps your state organizations and it helps them be able to educate consumers about the products, promote the products. And it also helps with the research that we need to do as producers of different products to find out what is the best way to do things as far as raising pigs, raising cattle and chickens. And it helps with all the research on the different meat products and the best ways that they're used. So that's what your mandatory checkoff dollars are for. So, and that came about from usually referendums. There was a vote by the whole industry that could vote and, and that a collection would be made and would go to the state organization or the national organizations and and so forth. In your case, what? How much does it cost? What's the what's the amount that a weaned pig, you know, is putting into the into the bucket? Oh man, we just went through and redid checkoff. Um, I believe it's ten cents. A ten dime. cents per a hundred, dime, like a dime per hundred, per hundred, hundred weight or hundred dollars. Of course, you've got twenty one pound pigs. Yeah, per hundred dollars. Um, Okay. It's ten cents per hundred dollars. So believe. you've got to you've got to say in that. So as a result, yes. do you do you get involved in these organizations yourself? I do. I am. I am very involved in the organization. I'm. Um, I am the president elect of the Illinois Pork Producers Association. I have um, completed. Uh, uh, things with National Pork Board and National Pork Producers Council. 
And I believe as a producer, it is very important to be involved with these organizations on a state and a national level. It is very important. Do you have a professional staff and they come and report to you as a policymaker and say, here's what we're going to do to try to, uh, you know, increase demand for the products? They can say, you know, pork products taste good, recipes, all sorts of things like that, nutritional benefits and that. And you fund that. And then also some production research as well. Is that right? Yes. Yes. As yes. You know, I I have to ask you, um, does it. Is it posing some special challenges now that that there are consumers that that know less and less, but seem to be more curious, or at least some of the opinion leaders want to be curious and have opinions on how uh, pigs are being produced, mm-hmm. but have never seen it and really don't know for sure, and they're dependent on what they see in in the news. Is that? How has that affected you as a as a pork producer or as the associations when you've you've got these consumers that again never been close to a hog farm, but what little they hear, they're worried about the big companies, they're worried about the production practices, they don't understand farrowing crates and things like that. Um, how how do you deal with that? I mean, it could be that this is a something that isn't going to go away anytime soon. Um, you just educate them. Uh, you educate them. You, the biggest thing that uh, my industry, I would say, as pork producers, um, my dad, uncles, grandparent, uh, great grandpa, they would never do anything like I'm doing today, ever. But I have seen how hard that they work, manually have worked over the years, and if you do not tell your story. Somebody else will, and they will twist your story. Mm-hmm. So I work really hard to tell my family story and to tell the truth about what is really happening and why my family does it the way that they do it. Now, I will say that there are hundreds of ways to do any job, but you need to find out what is the most effective for your family, meaning what is the bet in our situation How can I raise a safe and healthy product for consumers to eat? How can I ensure that all of my employees are safe every day that they go to work? Because that is super important to my family. Yeah. Those two keys right there. So I do. I tell my family story. I encourage anybody that has questions, call me. Yeah. I'll answer your question. I'm not going to publish your phone number here yet because that's okay. Uh, I would you prefer know. you don't because my phone in just this time that I've been talking to you, I think I have 15 missed phone calls. So uh, yeah. I'd be okay with you not doing that. But yeah. I, 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 here's my thing. The consumer nowadays is so far removed from the actual farm. I would encourage the consumer to Find your local farm bureau, your local pork producers, cattlemen's association, your poultry association, and your dairy association, whatever one that you have a concern with. And and ask them. Ask them. We we aren't hiding anything as producers. We do everything the ethical way. And we all would answer your questions. 
when you get a hold of, um, I'll use my, for example, my state executive, she goes to her producers to get some of the answers to any of the questions that she doesn't know the answers to. Um, my state executive, I mean, she is there to help us as producers to make sure that we are doing the correct job too. And I just, I encourage people to actually talk to the farmers themselves. Don't. It's, it's And I think that's good advice. And people do it like here, uh, if they're here in California, we've got 40 million people and not very many hog farms, really. There's some, but then not very, not, not very many out, out here in California. And the only place they can come across anybody that's raising hogs is maybe somebody doing uh, organic, uh, somebody that's, you know, various kind of things like that. So more of what you might consider more of a niche kind of production. And they yeah. can meet them at the farmer's market. So they can yeah. talk to somebody that may have, um, you know, 10 sows mm -hmm. and is able to actually have them go up into some oak trees and acorns and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's, it's great if that's what you want and you want to understand that, but it's not, there are long ways. They have to drive two and a half days to get to your place from here. I yes, know that firsthand. <laughs> and yes. so they're not going to get out there very much. Yeah. So it's a, it's a challenge. And that's why we're of course in the middle of an, we've had an issue in the last few years. It's a prop 12 we've talked about in California where, where the, the voters that got on a ballot to say, do you think that uh, would be, you want to have people give hogs more room, not only hogs, but chickens and veal calves. And people mm -hmm. said, sure. Um, why wouldn't they? You know, it's just like, because without taking the whole story and when you vote on something, um, most people don't understand every single thing they're voting on. And so we ended up with a, a law in California that is dictating uh, products sold in California, uh, how it's produced. And it's still being appealed. The Supreme Court's ruled, and then there's going to be other actions, and it's probably tied up with things like this in courts. I suspect, though, that that isn't one way or the other. That isn't the end to this sort of thing. I think that it's a new horizon that people that care about how their food is produced are curious can't possibly learn enough about it and oftentimes that food is produced 2000 miles away from them as well too so it's it, i'm afraid we can't solve the problem with this podcast and uh, mm -hmm. because i think it continues to be a challenge of how we educate how we inform how we create communications and probably two-way streets i mean it ends mm -hmm. up being something that these production industries will see a new way of raising livestock or producing food. And they may have to pause and say, gee, I wonder what consumers will think of this. You know, so it won't be well, just enough. Here's one thing that I, I do want the consumers to know is, is that as a producer, you know, my family eats that meat too. Mm -hmm. And as any producer in any industry, you know, our family we eat those eggs. We drink that milk. We would never produce anything that would be harmful to anybody because that means that it would be affecting our families too. And I think that's one thing that has a big misconception about so much of this stuff is that, yes, I am the producer. My family produces this, this pig 
is what we produce. But the consumers forget that I have a family too. And I care about what my kids eat. And I care about what my parents eat. And I care about what I eat. Why would you think that a producer would produce something that they wouldn't even let their own family eat? Well, and I think that that's a really good question. And I think part of the, that answer, though, is that can gets back to the point that people aren't sure who is producing it. And they hear stories about large packers that, uh, in fact, one of the largest packers is owned by a company in, in China. Mm-hmm. And they see this kind of corporate world and they're not so sure. They could believe that a farmer, when they get a chance to meet Cheryl, uh, they could believe a farmer wants to do the right thing and so forth. But then they're wondering, yeah, but I wonder down the road. They've got other things to to worry about. And then say, if you've got four big meat packers, are they all uh, committed to doing the right thing? And maybe they are. But yeah. it's it's confusing. It is. And I, I understand that. And if I, I guess if my profession wasn't so tied to the food supply, I might have different questions. I mean, I I'll be flat out honest. I have a a sister-in-law that is not tied to any of this and she does have questions. And you know, I I'll be honest in everything that I have to say on all of it. And you know, there are people that are so far removed that they don't even know what questions to ask. True. True. Well, do you know what? I think the other thing is too that maybe there'll come a time where in addition doing what you know makes sense, you you do enter into it. Yeah, but I wonder what my sister-in-law would think. Yeah. And oh, and and that's a, a new factor for maybe agriculture production is because they have beyond just the treatment of animals, it's what is this what is this practice doing to the climate? What is this doing to water quality? You know, all of these things. I think generally I think this is healthy. But mm-hmm. it does make our job harder if we want to be involved in as we're doing today, talking about it and trying to share the story. But Cheryl, yeah. you do a great job. I, I tell you, I think I really appreciate the explanation. And there's so much more we can get into. But I think you've helped a, a lot of people in today's discussion kind of understand how this is not your grandfather's farms anymore. And for good reason. So I'm happy we've connected with this farmer today. So, um, so Cheryl Walsh, I, I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. You're welcome. I enjoyed today. Thank you. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 